You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In the early part of the 20th century, in his book Decline of the West, Oswald Spengler suggested that like all organic beings, nations progress through a life cycle. They're born, pass through an adolescence, mature, come into their prime, uh, enter old age, and finally die. Uh, In all of these cases, the mark of wisdom is when a people recognizes its own stage of life and acts accordingly. I know we can agree or disagree about some of the specifics of Spengler's life cycle, uh, but I think there's something to this argument. Uh, For example, under the Roman Republic, uh, the Senate was the capstone of a political career. Uh, It was the place where senior officials would settle down and and give advice to sitting politicians. Beginning with Augustus, the Senate evolved into an aristocratic administrative pool from which bureaucrats could be drawn and and set out uh, to help governing, uh, sent out to help governing the empire. Uh, In his new book, The Triumph of Empire, uh, Dr. Michael Kulikowski describes yet another stage in the life of Rome, uh, the details of which we will get to very shortly. My name is Coyle Neal, and I'm an assistant professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Joining me today to talk about this Roman transition from rule by senatorial gentry to rule by middle management is Dr. Michael Kulikowski, who explores this topic in this new book, The Triumph of Empire. Uh, Dr. Kulikowski is head of the Department of History at Pennsylvania State University in University Park, Pennsylvania. Dr. Kulikowski, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about sort of the, the basic theme and movements behind your book, and then we can maybe dig into some of the details as we go along. Sure. Um, you know, that uh, narrative histories of the Roman Empire are something that, that keep evolving over time as we learn new things and have new insights, and, and, and as we think about... Um, we think about Roman history in relationship to our own times and, the, and even our own methods of learning in a given, you know, in a given time period, given era. Um, and the fact of the matter is that Rome is endlessly exciting in this respect because most, certainly most Western European states since the very fall of the Roman Empire have at one time or another compared themselves to Rome. I mean, Spengler's notion that you've already brought up, that um, empires and cultures go through life cycles, the, the model for uh, polity falling apart is that of the Roman Empire. How did something last for a thousand years, conquer the world, and then stop being, in a sense, whenever that happened, which is disputed? And so thinking about the empire at its height and the way it changed organically over time is something that has to be redone in every, you know, every generation, every scholarly generation, every uh, historical generation. And so what the triumph of empire looks at is the way in which the empire evolves from the first century AD when it is still in some ways uh, administered by the family of the emperor uh, through the second century when the larger provincial aristocracy, if you will, the uh, we can come back to the notion of what it, what an equestrian is, but um, this, uh, I think he used the term middle management, a group of people from whom middle management positions were selected generally, um, comes increasingly to the forefront of government uh, as the emperors themselves are m- rule over a larger and larger imperial state. And then it moves on to the 3rd century AD, when, for a variety of reasons, the Roman imperial uh, governing class goes through a series of, of, of upheavals, I think is a good word. Um, and the empire, in some ways, looks as if it might be on the verge of disintegration, but, uh, but this, um, cent- the, the forces leading toward, to unity actually end up being stronger than those... Um, leading to fissiparousness, to, to dis- disintegration. And the empire holds together, uh, but it holds together in a, in a new and very different way. And we can see that new style of imperial government, new style of imperial culture emerge in the 4th century AD, um, particularly under the emperor Constantine and his sons, particularly his um, second son, Constantius II. Um, and... The Triumph of Empire is the first of, of two, two volumes. The next one will be called um, 
tragedy of empire, uh, sort of takes off where this one leaves off in the middle of the fourth century with a strong but very different imperial government uh, and takes us through what is traditionally known as the fall of Rome. But here in the triumph of empire, we stop in with the sort of the new empire that Constantine creates at the start of the fourth century. Yeah, I think it... Uh... Uh, it is it is interesting. The, your your subtitle is uh, fr- from uh, Hadrian to Constantine, uh, Roman Empire from Hadrian to Constantine. Um, you don't actually you actually cover much more than that, right? You you start with uh, uh, Trajan and then you run all the way through. Is it Julian? Uh, now I assume that's uh, because they're uh, Hadrian and Constantine are the ones who create the systems that you're talking about, uh, or is it just because the names are more familiar? People know who Constantine is, and nobody knows who Julian is. That would be, um, it would have been a publisher's decision as much as anything else. Uh, but in fairness, you can say that, uh, you know, I, I, I do look at Trajan's reign at very much as a background to, very much as a background to Hadrian's um, long and rather fraught reign. And then I look at the aftermath of Constantine, uh, his sons, their civil wars, the eventual accession of um, a nephew, uh, Julian, and the way in which Julian, Julian sort of turn, it forms a turning point because it it will come as sort of, it's no it's no secret that um, first of all Julian uh, was uh, virulently anti-Christian and tried to undo the changes to the empire that his uncle Constantine had put in place. Constantine really did Christianize the empire in lots of ways, but then on top of that. Um, Julian's spectacular fa- failure in invading Persia and um, and getting himself killed there really does form um, a turning point, but also a good breaking point because after Julian, even though there are still imperial dynasties, um, what really does change is that for a good 50, 60, 70 years, there's... Um, the empire is is effectively ruled by a sort of an alliance of elite military families and elite civilian bureaucratic families. And it's a very different dynamic from the world um, of Constantine and his sons, although it must emerge from the world of Constantine and his sons. And, and I think that might be a good place to ask what you would uh, ask about that, that term that you'd mentioned earlier, uh, the equestrian. Uh, they're, they're, they're sort of the people who show up all through Roman history. Uh, if, if I remember correctly, they, they stretch back into the monarchy uh, and through the other end, you know, past, past 476 or wherever we want to, wherever we want to date the end of Rome. Uh, what is an equestrian? That's not, that's not quite the, on the, on the tail end. That's not quite right. Uh, on the tail end, the, the equestrians as a, as a social rank disappear in the fourth century. But, um, but, I'll, but okay. it just as an overview, you're right that as, as soon as we have, as early as we have um, documentation for Roman history, we have um, a group of nobles who are, we, we think of as the senators, um, and we have a lesser wealth class, both of these, ultimately, both statuses are based upon uh, wealth as well as a variety of other issues. But um, whereas senators are intimately connected with office holding, which means holding the magistracies of the Roman state, uh, equestrians, on the other hand, are um, are very much a category that is dependent upon having a minimum family fortune. And that, that minimum family fortune varies and continues to grow through the early imperial period. But the reason that we call them equestrian and the reason they were called equestrians, um, equus uh, is a horse, right? Equus is a horse. Equus is an equestrian uh, in Latin. And it comes from the fact of these being men or heads of households who possessed a family income, possessed a family fortune that was large enough to maintain a horse that, to be to be ridden in the army of the of the republic of the archaic republic. Now, how long did this? How, how long did equestrians riding to horse last? Not very long. Uh, to you know, certainly by the time we really entered well documented Roman history in in say the third century BC, the equestrians are very much a propertied class. They're associated. Um, they are associated closely and interlinked with senatorial families, but that there are many equestrian families that don't don't aspire to send 
their children to hold office in the state and remain as equestrians. But what happens in the transition from, from republic to empire is that the old, first of all, the old senatorial aristocracy is absolutely brutalized and um, depleted, hugely depleted in the civil wars going for really from, from the dictator Sulla in the 80s BC all the way through wars between Pompey and Caesar, the wars between um, the assassins of Caesar and the Caesarian party, and the wars between Mark Antony and, and Octavian, so that uh, and and so that there's not a whole lot of the old senatorial families left when Octavian becomes Augustus and proceeds to live forever, or <laughs> until AD fourteen. Um, and what this means is that there are the continuity of the Senate is a continuity that is um, ideological as much as it is um, as much as it is biological, but the continuity of the equestrian class, because it was so much bigger, is uh, is more continu- continuous. And what that means, what that means is that um, not only are some equestrian families encouraged in the imperial period to take up office holding and enter the Senate, but many, as, as the imperial government grows, more and more equestrians um, come into imperial government not as magistrates, in other words, not as people... Um, serving in executive positions so much as people serving in uh, management positions, managerial positions, those in charge of uh, things like the emperor's correspondence or responding to petitions or looking after various elements in the imperial or the either the emperor's own or the imperial state's finances. And what we see happening in the first century AD really before my story takes up, is a transition from the empire being managed by members of the imperial household, whether those are imperial slaves or imperial freedmen, and a transition from that to men of equestrian families um, um, administering these offices. And then the story I tell is one in which really starting in... starting. But starting before I take up, but um, but increasing rapidly through the second century and into the third, not only do more and more functions of government become formalized and taken over by equestrians of one sort or another, but but formerly senatorial tasks are hived off and given to equestrians. And I think the biggest thing to that to realize is that you know. Um, as I mean, as those of us who teach in universities know, bureaucracies have a tendency to, to self-perpetuate and get more complicated. Um, <laughs> sure. And that's precisely what happens with the equestrian classes, that once you've got people doing things, uh, you realize that there are other things they could be doing, and then you multiply offices and you multiply functions. And, and that's, one, that's a big story. That's a big part of the story of how the Roman Empire actually sustains itself, is the is the concentric circles of governance and participation, um, much of which is located in that in that equestrian order? And uh, maybe uh, maybe one more uh, one more sort of foundational question uh, before we, we get into some of the, uh, uh, the the historical details. But your your uh, book, one of the contributions it makes is it uh, relies heavily on numismatics. Uh, so can you uh, maybe talk a little bit about the the role of coins in your book and, and where that fits into your overall historical narrative? Well, coins are an interesting category of evidence, um, partly because there's so many of them, um, partly because we keep learning new things, new types of coins keep coming out of the ground. Um, sadly, given the, um, sadly, a lot of them come out of the ground because of the instability and warfare going on across a swathe of, from South Asia across to the Mediterranean and um, right. and but we we for better or for worse new new types of coins keep emerging and what do coins tell us in some ways coins are um, an ideological projection of the imperial state I and mean, nobody thinks that the emperors paid careful attention to the legends or the pictures on each and every coin but there's no question that they reflect the outlook of the ideology of the imperial government at any given time. And that means that watching it change 
uh, watching the messages change, watching the types change, watching actually the physical quality of the coins change, can tell us things about Roman imperial history, about what emperors were thinking they were doing or what they wanted people to think they thought they were doing. Um, And also, in a much more mundane kind of way, the more precise our chronologies are, the more we learn about the coins, I should say, uh, the more precise our chronologies become. The period from, period certainly from this second century in lots of ways, and definitely the third and the fourth centuries, our just our basic chronology is not as strong as it is for the last century of the Republic and the first 60, 70 years of the empire. And we just don't have the same sort of, the same robustness, the same quantity and detail of um, literary sources. And what does that mean? That means that we have to rely on other sources. There are lots of inscriptions. The Romans, um, particularly the Romans of our period, like to put up big monumental texts in Latin or Greek, and they often tell us a lot about how Roman government worked. But knowing when coins were issued, knowing the sequence, you can there are a number of different technical ways in which you can tell what sequence uh, particular emperor's coins are, are issued in. Um, the most simple is the number of, um, is counting the number of times he was given a particular uh, tribunician authority, um, which is a technical detail that we don't have to go into. But there are lots of ways to work out the sequences of the coins, um, and they are basically dated. Uh, And the greater, the finer precision that we have um, on the coins, the more we can say that Emperor X, you know, ran this campaign in this month rather than that month, or that this this disaster happened before that disaster, or this triumph happened after that triumph. I mean, and and so we keep learning new things from the coins. Um, right. So there, there's obviously a, a huge difference between the way they, uh, the Romans, use money and the way we use money. Right. So so we might look at our two dollar bill and say, well, gosh, Jefferson's on the two. He must not have been a very important president. That's not how Roman money worked. No, the Roman Roman money had an imperial image on the on the front of it, and gold coins were obviously for high value transactions and for storing wealth because gold coins can be melted down and they have an intrinsic bullion value. Um, the Roman economy made a transition in the period that we study from basically being a primarily a silver based economy to in the fourth century being an entirely gold based economy. Um, small change made out of base metal, bronze, or um, it's called billin, silver, silver-washed alloys of various kinds. The small change of which exists in huge quantities goes from being um, going from being a, a really beautiful large coins with the imperial image and lots of lots of detailed messaging on the back to little tiny chunks of you know of what are basically slugs almost. And um, but right. all through all of this, the the coin is a way of storing wealth. And then uh, for, for the people who use it, of small, ex- small level exchange as well as very high level gift giving in terms of gold. And then um, from the imperial point of view, it's not just, it's not just about priming the, econ- the economy and supplying the army, which is, and supplying the army is clearly the most important thing. Um, but it's also a way of projecting an image. And so the messages change, and they often change very rapidly. And I think that's the big difference, is that we don't expect, our, and we don't expect the images on our, um, on our paper money to change very often. In fact, if they did, we'd be worried about something. Um, and the opposite is true of Roman coins, which were reminted in huge quantities and uh, sucked back into the imperial state, melted down, reminted, and new images, um, new images struck on them, new messages struck on them. Right. And, uh, and I, if, if, if we remember, we should come back to that when we get to Constantine, right? Because he's the, he's the, uh, the great villain or the great hero, depending on, on how we, we look at some of this. Uh, but your, uh, your, your narrative starts, uh, uh, in the uh, in the the period of Roman history, which uh, which Gibbon says was the time when man was what most happy and most free, uh, and uh, ends with the rise of Constantine, who who is uh, who is Gibbon's great villain. Uh, how do we how do we get from point A to point B there? Uh, uh, what and and I realize that that's basically asking you to give us your entire book in, in a few minutes. Um, but but what's what's your uh, what's your explanation for the transition from the Roman Empire under Hadrian to the Roman Empire under Constantine? Oh, um, there's a series of 
and there's no there's no one no one explanation um i think two really dramatic things happen that that alter the shape of the roman world so that it has to be it has to be re- what imperial government does has to be reconceived and is reconceived by constantine's predecessors the tetrarchs diocletian mm-hmm. uh, and then by constantine um i think two things one the rise of or the the transformation from an empire that was run by Romans from the city of Rome and Italians from south of of the Apennines or south of the Po River, an empire run for the benefit of those people and largely by elites who were co-opted into that group or else came organically out of that group. Um, From there a gradual transition that then becomes sort of a landslide in the third century of provincial Romans becoming Romans so that you could, you didn't have to become to join the imperial governing elite. You did not have to become deracinated. You could remain, you could remain part of your home society and not just you know, stay in Italy and give back to your home society, but rather remain firmly rooted in your local environment and still be a Roman and still participate in governance, um, and I think the third-century transition is partly about the the difficulty of what happens when you've got a governing class that is no longer homogeneous. Then you've got a governing class that that you can be a a Roman, not just a Roman from Syria, who goes to Italy and becomes a Roman senator and then becomes a Roman of Rome, but rather somebody who is can be a Greek or Latin elite. In their, you know, in their small town in Galicia, in Spain, or their, or their moderate city in Tripolitania or Libya, and you can you can be that, and you don't, in a sense, have to go all in on the on the moving to Rome. Part of this has to do with the rights of citizenship, which are gradually extended in the period, and then and then granted wholesale in the year two twelve. But I think it's par- partly it's it's it really is this provincialization of what it means to be Roman is the is where the transformation comes in, and it certainly leads to instability in the third century. The dynastic, the inability of any dynasty to put itself on the throne after two thirty five A.D. Um, really for a hundred years almost. Um, that's a major cause of um, of disintegration that is then turned into a reason for you know reintro- reintegration on new terms and that's the um and that's what happens under the tetrarchs but particularly under constantine what you have is a is a remarkably expanded state staffed by people from all over the world i mean all over the roman world which is a long and a big place from scotland to uh, to syria and iraq um and staff from from this wide world with interlocking networks of local power and and people go into the imperial administration and become part of it, but also never so in some ways psychologically and also actually in some ways never leave the context of their provincial environment. So it's a very different, it's a very very different empire that reaches the the benefits of it um, reach deeper down than I think is the case in the. In the first century AD. On the other hand, it's also a much more violent empire. It's an empire in which the state provides for the, the state provides less for less for more people, and um, and I think it sows a sort of perpetual a perpetual fragility. Right. So this, the the, the large scale stability is there, but there's also a, a, a real fragility to the way the fourth century empire works, and we can see that when it falls apart. The other thing that I think is the major change that that creates the difference between the empire of Hadrian and the empire of Constantine is the Rome's contact with the outside world. And I think this is a, a major part of, of third and and then ongoing third, third history, third century history forward. And I think it's probably one of the areas where my, my interpretation and my, and the book's interpretation differs from, I would say the majority of other sort of similar attempts at an overview, and that is making sure that we do not understand Rome as a sort of monolithic protagonist around which other things revolve, but realize that 
Rome is from the third century onwards connected in in slight but genuinely meaningful ways to a much larger Eurasian world so that things that happen in the in the Himalayas or more or the Hindu Kush more more precisely really are things that have a knock-on consequence that actually can be felt in the history of the Roman Empire and I think this is partly through contact with the world of the steppe um, that runs from Europe all the way to the to what's now uh, Hexi province in China, um, and also because of contact with the empire of the Persians, which is a, a much more um, much more Central Asian and much more um, much more diverse and much more um, connected entity than the Parthian Empire had been, which was the place that Rome understood in the late Republic, early empire. And I think that this, this Eurasian aspect of Roman history is, is fundamental uh, to the, some of the changes that are forced upon Rome or inspired in Rome. And I, I, I really appreciated that about the book, the, the repeated focus on uh, the peoples around Rome and the, the back and forth interactions between them. Uh, although I, I do have sort of a question about that. I, so I, 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 I get and I agree with the idea that we don't want to assume sort of Rome is central, everyone else is a supporting actor. But my, my hesitation there uh, is, isn't that what all of our sources say? I mean, if, if our sources are assuming, I mean, I suppose there are Parthian sources or, or Persian sources as well, but the, the, the bulk of, from my understanding, the bulk of our sources are, are Roman sources. How do, you, how do you sort of get away from the narrative of the sources that suggests that hey we're the we're the heroes we're the good guys, uh, and then take the side of lack of sources. I guess this is a historiography question that I'm, I'm asking here. Yeah, I mean there are, you know, obviously we don't, for instance, have any record of what various step nomadic polities, you know, Sarmatians or Alans or later on the Huns, what they what they said for themselves or what they thought for themselves. We just don't that we don't have. Right. We have a great deal of information. We have. We have intermittent information on Parthia, um, but you're right that much of that is from a Roman perspective. We do have a lot of evidence for Persia. Some of it's numismatic, some of it's artwork, some of it's inscriptions. Um, and increasingly, we have a lot of really new, in the past decade, two decades, um, information coming on coming to us about what the Sasanian Persian Northeast, so what we would now think of as... as, um, as um, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and some of the former uh, Soviet Central Asian republics. The Persian uh, interaction there is something we understand a lot more than we did 25, 30 years ago. And and we can see now that what, from the Roman perspective, looks like a Persia that is f- entirely focused on Rome, and that when Persia <laughs> is not... Um, you know, and when, when and 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 sometimes the Persians' actions or motives are mysterious, but they but they must always be about Rome, and that's how the Roman sources write it. What we can see actually is that that, that the Persian shahs have um, have a lot of other things on their minds, from dealing with what we now think of as Northwest India and Pakistan to dealing with their own set of steppe problems across the Caucasus and across um, and uh, on the other side of the Caspian Sea in what's now uh, Uzbekistan. <laughs> And um, that they have motives and um, and what would you call it policy um, imperatives of their own, and we also now realize that um, you know that the world of that the world of Rome and the world of Persia is not just that Mesopotamian frontier, which is what the Roman sources make it seem like it is. It's just about battles fought in what's now Syria and Iraq. It's not that. It's actually, it's also the Red Sea. It's the Persian Gulf. It's the Arabian Peninsula. I mean, we now know that for a a while in the second century, there were Roman legions, I mean, legionaries, not a whole legion, but garrisoning um, islands off the coast of Saudi Arabia near to what's now Yemen. And this is an astonishing sort of expansion of our knowledge of of these... um, these small but but significant interactions that change the priorities and that determine the priorities of of Romans, but also this sense that 
Persia, at least, has an agency as a state that we need to we need to strive to understand and then bring that to bear on how we think about the Romans. Oh, that's and that's great. I, like I said, I, I really appreciated that in the in the book. Um, well, I, I would I would love to keep digging into to some of these details, but uh, what I suspect listeners of Christian Humanist Profiles will, will be interested in is uh, uh, some of your your work with the relationship between the Roman state and the church, uh, which again, Gibbon uh, Gibbon famously blames the the troubles of the Roman Empire, certainly the, the later Roman Empire, uh, on the church. Uh, with Constantine again being uh, the at least the first great villain, if not the not the last one. Uh, so. Uh, we should probably dig into some of that. Uh, so what do you think? Constantine, was he a good guy? Was he a bad guy? Uh, what, what do we do with him? Uh, as, as, a, as a Baptist, I have very mixed thoughts on Constantine. So um, Gibbon blamed the fall on barbarism and religion. And by that, he meant sure. barbarians and invasions. And then also the what he considered a barbaric religion, which is Christianity. Um, and he blamed Constantine on uh, for letting Christianity into the Roman state. Um, what, what do I think about Constantine? I think that Constantine's, um, I think Constantine's conversion to Christianity uh, was, from, from everything we can see, genuine. Did he understand Christianity in a way that 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 his contem- that contemporary bishops did? Impossible to tell. Did he understand it in the way that mm. any modern sectarian um, approach, any single sectarian approach, would would accept as Christianity? Again, impossible to tell. What's clear is that Constantine thought him of himself as a Christian after three twelve and imposed Christian friendly and non Christian unfriendly policies on the empire. I think the most significant thing is the ban of sacrifice, which this is controversial. There are scholars who everybody agrees that by 340, so under Constantine's sons, pagan sacrifice was banned. That's not that's a non-issue. The um, controversy, because the sources are not good, is whether uh, Constantine himself banned sacrifice. I believe he did. I, I don't believe it was terribly well enforced outside some of the major cities, but I do believe he right. did ban sacrifice. And I think that's a massive blow at the heart of the of the, the late ancient world's concept of what is efficacious in dealing with divine things. So I think that, that, that on the one hand, Constantine is is deeply deeply um, implicated in dealing a fundamental body blow to antique styles of religion which involved, you know, sacrifice to and the petitioning of deities and divine power, however that divine power was conceived. And there's no question that lots of pagans were monotheists um, as well. There's no question of that. I think that the other thing, though, that Constantine did by putting the weight of the Roman state behind the church was to store up a whole lot of trouble for imperial government because <laughs> sure because and i and I, you know i say this and it, i think it'll come out even more in the in the sequel volume um ancient religions and the Ro- and the roman state religion of emperor worship and the wor- and the and the um honoring and worshiping of the of what they we call the capitoline triad the three most important gods of the roman state starting with jupiter what mattered there was what you did, right? So uh, it's not nobody. Nobody cared because it didn't really, in some sense, matter how much you believed in the efficacy of what you were doing, or it didn't matter what you thought was efficacious about going and burning incense or um, offering up a goat or a sheep or a bull to the or a, you know the um, or a pig, a cow, and a and a sheep to the the triad, the Roman triad, it didn't matter what you thought you were doing. You were accomplishing it by performing the action. And this was something that was a sign of loyalty. You'd better well do it, but it didn't matter. The the intention behind it was invisible and irrelevant to a large extent. The problem with Christianity, as it at, at least as it as it happened very very quickly after Constantine's conversion, was that Christianity is is not at least in the fourth century is not concerned solely with what you do, but also with what you 
believe, what you think, what is your definition, what is the correct definition of God the Father as opposed to God the Son? What are the what is the correct relationship of God the Son to the Holy Spirit? What is the correct relationship? Um, what is the or what should be said is what is the precise what is the precise word by which you can describe the being of one part of the tr- of the Trinity versus the other? These are things that you can't perform, right? You you cannot perform that belief. It really does. You can you can state your your um, assent to one or another version of these questions, but there's no there's no action involved that can make it true. And if what you're what you're trying to police in Christianity is that people believe the right thing, because if they don't, they're going to hell. Um, if you want, if you're trying to police the people's access to salvation, um, then how do you go about doing that? How do you know? We don't. You know, you can't read people's minds. And so, the enforcement of Christian, correct Christian belief, the enforcement of orthodoxy becomes a minefield for the late Roman state. And I think it has all sorts of long-standing consequences that do contribute to, in a sense, weakening the imperial system. Mm-hmm. And in, that's both in the West, although I would say that's in the, the fall of the Roman Empire in the West has, has much less to do with Christianity than ultimately the fall of the Roman Empire in the East, the alienation, which is not something I cover in this book, and it's not something I'll cover in the next one either, but when the, when the last really Roman imperial, the last phase of the Roman imperial state um, is from, say, 560 through to 650, 630, 640 in there. And in that period, I think that, that ends with the Islamic conquests. Um, a big part of the weakness of the empire in the face of both Persian and um, and then Muslim uh, invaders is that uh, the splintering of imperial Christianity and the imperial decision to enforce a deeply unpopular theological formula on provinces where which would never accept it. This contributes greatly to the ultimate fall of the Eastern Roman Empire. And that's and I think the, and I think that that all goes back. <coughs> that really does all go back to Constantine. Right, and that's uh, that. That is like you said. That's that's one of the given the big given arguments is the infighting between Christians saps the strength of the empire and the uh, all of the the men of great ability, right? Who who would otherwise have been serving the empire end up in the church, uh, which I, I really I, I found it interesting your presentation of Athanasius uh, as this this great sort of political Machiavellian manipulator uh, who's maybe not always that good at it because he keeps getting exiled. But uh, it's still, it's, it's, it's interesting the, the, the way you sort of play him up a little bit. Um, so uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of the administrative influence of, of Christianity on the state. So you, uh, you've, you've talked a bit about how that, that involves the, the state in a, in the quagmire, right, of Christian doctrine in the, uh, uh, I don't even remember the, the Greek terms, the homoousian and homoousian or, or however you're supposed to say that. Um, are there any benefits for the, the uh, for the empire out of this this intermingling? I think that in some ways it's um, well. I, in terms of imperial political power, I'm not. I, I'm I'm agnostic on that question. I'm not sure it does a tremendous. I, it does long term harm, but in day to day long term help, hard to know. I mean, it certainly is a is a. It certainly brings buy-in to emperors from an important, powerful um, class of local elites, and that's and it binds them. You know, it binds the bishops who agree with the imperial um, take on Christianity much more closely together with them. And and there's no there's no doubt that it is that it is important at, um, and effective at some level. Now. Uh, do I think that do, what 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 do I think the good of this is? I think that it's really important to realize that um, that sometimes cultural efflorescence does not correspond to political power or periods of political power or political authority. And I mean, I think that we see this that you know the huge outpouring of brilliant literature from the chaos of the civil wars that brought down the republic, the intense cultural that it was eventually harnessed by Augustus, but the intense cultural efflorescence of the late Republic corresponds with the the weakening of the Imperial Republic um, 
very, very badly. And I think fundamentally the fourth century state, um, you know, has, has a great many strengths, but it's not, I mean, as the fifth century and the fall of the Western empire demonstrates, it's mm. not an, it's not a sustainable, it's not a sustainable, um, governmental culture. But what changes is think about, um, the, think about the difference between, there's not a great deal of brilliant literature or brilliant artwork of the second and third centuries by comparison to the huge outpouring of sometimes Christian, but also sometimes non-Christian literature that's, that's, that exists in the fourth and the fifth centuries in the West, culminating in Augustine, who is, I mean, by probably one of the greatest or most important, I should say, figures in, in mm. Western, Western cultural thought. On the one hand, um, that culmination, but then also the explosion of really, really great late Greek literature, and then the rise mm-hmm. of entirely new, li- entirely new literary cultures in in Syriac, so in the in the developed form of, of what was many hundreds of years before that Aramaic, this Syriac Christian culture, which is still just being explored and still being taken on board by Greek and Roman historians, is is something that's brand new, and it and it's purely a product. It really is purely a product of Christianity. The same thing happens with, you know, uh, Christianity brings uh, literature to and brings cultural efflorescence to Armenian, to Georgian, to Ethiopian. I mean, all of these things are in are responses in, in to the conversion of at least the elites and then ultimately of populations. And I think that's, I think that's something that, um, has been brought out in the last 30, 40 years of late antique scholarship is that on the one hand, you have political decline and fall, and it would be, we would be foolish to deny that. Um, on the other hand, you have cultural transformation and cultural efflorescence. There's just, there's no, and the, and those two things, you know, it, people have treated them as counterintuitive, but they're not. And you just, and that's something we have to bring on board. Right. And, and, I suppose if I were a medievalist, I would uh, I would want to argue that you have a political decline and fall, as as you say, um, of the of the sort of three great bureaucracies, certainly of the Western Empire, where you have the the civil government, the military, uh, and then the church. The church is the one that that makes it right. It's it's the one that survives when the uh, the, the the state and the uh, uh, the military collapse. Uh, so maybe one advantage is is some lasting stability when everything else is falling apart. I'm not a medievalist, so I, I don't know how hard I'd want to push that. I think that it's the, it's my next volume, Tragedy of Empire, that will look at what falling apart looks like. And, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that, that, that you would much rather live in the 4th century than in the 5th century, that the, the world's, world becomes smaller sure. in the 5th century, um, even in the East, let alone in the West. And, um, you know, what the church sustains is a, a, a small number of important continuities, both in terms of culture terms of the latin language sometimes in terms of um you know the geographical units of of um of space but beyond that i mean it's the fact of the matter is that i i think in the fifth and certainly the sixth century the western the latin world just ceases to bear ceases to be ancient and ceases to be antique in any in any recognizable way and that's um that's a story for for a different book but i don't but but i but i don't think that you know the the vaunted idea that um that the, the church carried antiquity into the middle ages is is true in a very very limited sense but really it's such an attenuated heritage that um that it's the yeah well, I have uh, I have two two closing questions, uh, but uh, before we get to that, I, I do have one more sort of, I guess, uh, uh, question to the the substance of your your book. So one of the uh, one of the issues that the empire consistently faces, starting with Augustus and then running, I mean, uh, certainly I think through the end of the Eastern Empire, but uh, your your book has made me rethink this a little bit, uh, is the question of how do you pick the next emperor? Right? Yeah, the the problem of succession. Uh, uh, so as, as you pointed out earlier, we have this uh, this this early empire that's focused on the city of Rome, uh, especially with the bureaucracy. But then uh, even with the, the emperor, uh, they, they never want to say it's a monarchy, so they can't have hereditary succession written down in paper. Uh, does does Constantine uh, do do Constantine and the Tetrarchy before him? Do they, in your mind, successfully solve that that problem? I mean, do we? 
do we have a solution with them? No. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that, um, and this is not, you know, succession crisis is oddly not generally a cause of instability in the Roman Empire, although there are repeated, constant succession crises. So again, that's a bit of a paradox. But the fact of the matter is that it's not like the Roman Empire does not descend into civil war every time an emperor dies unexpectedly or gets um, or gets assassinated, and that's uh, that's say different from the Sasanians in Persia, where the, every ruler's death, virtually without exception, there's a succession crisis of some sort for which of the children gets to be shot, or which of the brothers gets to be shot. Um, what the problem with the Roman, you've articulated the problem with Roman imperial transitions, which is that the that it's although in practice it is a hereditary monarchy, and in practice everybody expects the eldest surviving son or the occasionally the most competent surviving son to succeed. Um, there is no formal mechanism by which that can happen. And it's true, you know, it's, it's, it's true right down. It, it reasserts itself almost instantly with the death of Constantine when his three sons um, decide to massacre all the rest of their male relations and divide the empire between them when they then start promptly going to war with one another. And um, the, but again, that doesn't break up the empire. It's, uh, it, it's uh, the end, the fundamental um, sort of centralizing forces remain very strong, even in these moments of succession crisis, but there's no, fundamentally, there's no way to solve a problem when you have no explicit, if you, if you like constitutional means of, of, in, of, putting a successor in place, except for the Senate voting a package of powers to the person who's already de facto in that position. Um, and you don't have a, and, and, and you don't have a solution when the primary way to change governance is assassination, right? There's no, again, and so you, you have this as a, as a fundamental problematic of Roman history that, that, that there is no solution to the Tetrarchs tried with, um, with a planned succession, and um, it immediately it immediately broke down into into a uh, sort of contest between dynasticism and adult male heirs who wanted the job, and those who were designated who um, presumably wanted the job as well, but weren't weren't very good at doing it. So, um, so I mean, Constantine's sole rule and the uh, takes us back to to a norm, which I think is is the norm of Roman history, which is that you have a single ruler and there's no, and if the ruler does not designate an adult male as his partner in power to succeed him, then you have, uh, you have a guarantee of, of succession issues. Well, if someone wants to know more about this time period and they've already read Triumph of Empire, uh, what else would you recommend they read? What other sources would you point them towards? Well, I mean, there's there's lots of good stuff out there on on the Roman Empire. There are lots of good overviews. Um, there are lots of there are some very good biographies of individual emperors. Um, you know, walk into the shelf of your local shop, shelf of your local library, shelf of your local um, bookshop, and have a look around. I think the really exciting thing to do, though, is um, pick up some sources in translation and have a look at what the Romans were saying about. Um, about themselves. And there's, you know, there's an increasing number of those available. I think that, you know, that some of your listeners might want to read Eusebius's History of the Church. Um, I think that uh, the imperial biographies known as the Historia Augusta are fascinating and and a little bit strange, but there's a good Penguin translation of that. Um, some of the the writings of the second century in Greek have been translated quite well, and you know there are uh, Greek romances that are a great deal of fun. You can see um, what there's, and and I think probably the the best introduction to the sort of mindset of the high imperial period that I can think of. That if you want to read just one one primary source, pick up Apuleius, um, the, which is called the the Golden Ass or Metamorphoses of uh, of uh, the sort of semi-autobiographical, fictional bio, bi- autobiographical narrator who gets turned into a donkey. 
and has adventures in, in the Roman Mediterranean as a donkey. And it gives you a, an enormous insight into the social relations and the political um, political sort of realities almost of, of what it was like to be a, a educated middle class person in the provincial Roman world. And it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. It gives you also an insight into what Romans thought was funny and what Romans thought was, um, you know, strange. And honestly, Robert Graves's introduction alone makes that book worth picking up. That's right. Well, it is the practice here on Christian Humanist Profiles to give the guest the last word. Uh, so tell us anything you think we need to know about the topic, uh, or I suppose about life in general. <laughs> I think that, I, I think that, well, thank you. First of all, thank you for having me on. Um, se- secondly, I think that the listeners, it, it's really important to engage with past histories, not just things that you know yourself to be interested in, but to test yourself by picking up things that you might otherwise not. And the, the thing that would make me absolutely happiest is if people pick up Triumph of Empire, read it and finish, and not just say, hey, I want to go and read some more um, Roman history, but you know what? I don't know anything about China after the collapse of the... I don't know anything about China, let alone in any particular period. Um, let me run out and pick up something that will tell me about what was China like at the same time as the period of Rome I was, I, I've just been reading about. And that's, that's the sort of, um, I don't know that I'll inspire many people to do that, but that's the sort of thing that I think actually challenges our horizons, um, gets us to think new thoughts that we otherwise wouldn't have and gets us out of sort of reading things that confirm what we already believe or think we know. And, and the only way to really, um, keep your mind agile and active and learning is to seek out things that you didn't know you wanted to know about. And that's, I guess, that's how I'd like to end it. And that's what we'll do. So thank you again, Dr. Kulikowski, for joining us on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you listeners for tuning in as well. If you have comments or questions, please feel free to post them on the show notes at christianhumanist.com. Send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or comment on the Facebook page. Be sure to pick up a copy of The Triumph of Empire from Harvard University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Filippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next episode of Christian Christian Humanist Profiles.